What's going on, y'all? It's your boy, Mike Ryder, Mr. Accountability, the man behind the microphone. You are tuned in to a special edition of Mike Ryder Talks. I got a special guest in the house with me tonight with a very, very special message that I need y'all to hear. I'm live, just like I am every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on Facebook and YouTube. If this is your first time watching it, make sure to subscribe to the channel. Make sure to like the page wherever you're watching it at. And you know what? Without further ado, I'm about to get into my guest. Tonight, I'm joined by a man who has gone through some hardships in life. A man who was wrongfully convicted of murder and rape at the tender age of 17 years old. A man who was released 16 years later because of DNA evidence. He went on to graduate. Very emotional night right there. He went on to graduate to become a lawyer. And he now fights for those who have been wrongfully convicted. I'm speaking about none other than my man, Jeffrey Deskovic. How you doing tonight, my man? I mute your mic. Let's get to it. I'm great, Mike. I'm really, I'm really pumped up about this, uh, about this interview tonight. Hey, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. I'm ready to talk with you. We got some things that we need to uncover. However, I want to start at the beginning. What happened, Jeff? So I was arrested for a uh, murder and rape, which I didn't commit. So the year is 1990. It's in Peekskill. It's in Westchester County, New York. It's suburban. It's middle class. It's ethnically diverse. Uh, really very few murders that had happened there. And a classmate who was who was in two of my classes of freshmen, one as a sophomore, she, you know, she went missing. And a couple of days later, you know, her body was found naked from the waist down. And it really sent the city into like a atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. You know, parents were bringing their kids right to school and directly home. There were town hall meetings, uh, safety tips, progress on investigation. And the police uh, interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak with me uh, because I uh, didn't quite fit in. And then uh, an additional thing is that was really my first brush with death, and so I was a sensitive teenager. And so the police thought it was suspicious that I would be emotional about the murder of somebody that I barely knew. So they took that as a sign of guilt, and then they also got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So that was how I got on the police radar. So they take you in because you showed signs of what they were looking for from the profile. Yes. Okay, so once you get into custody, they do the full rundown. What evidence did they have against you? Well, they didn't have any initially. And so for about six weeks, uh, the police would meet with me two or three times a week. And, uh, you know, my, the, my interactions with them always had the dynamic that half the time they would talk to me as if I was a suspect. And the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. So they would say things like kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. 
They asked me opinion questions, congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Before I was a teenager, I, I used to think about being a cop when I grew up. So that played into that whole false narrative. And then they did the good cop, bad cop routine. And I began to look up to the officer who was pretending to be my friend as a, as a father figure. And eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph. They told me that some new information had come into the police file and they wanted to share that with me. And that would allow me to be more helpful to them. But first, though, I had to take and pass a polygraph. So the next day, instead of going to the school, I went to the police station. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school. So they didn't call around for me. I had no attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. They gave me a, a brochure explaining how the polygraph worked, but then I, I didn't understand what it what it really meant. I had a lot of big words, but I figured, well, I'm there to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. Then they put me in a small room, and, and again, they haven't given me anything to eat the, the whole time I'm there. There is no attorney. And mm -hmm. then he gives me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous, and then he launches into his third-degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He made my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that now, up. Hold, for on, six. hold on, Jeff. Let yeah. me cut you off right there. Mm -hmm. At this time, you're 17 years old. Yeah, I'm 16. 16 at this time. Mm -hmm. They're feeding you coffee, getting your nerves up. They're trying to get you nervous. Yes. Trying to get you to admit something that you didn't do. They're, they're scaring you in the corner pretty much. Correct. Correct. Mm. Keep on, man. I didn't. I didn't mean to. No. Whenever you want to break in and you. clarify something or ask further questions, that do that by all means. Don't hesitate. Uh, so, gotcha. yeah. So from there, so he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Do, okay. You know, and then towards the end, he's and each hour that goes by, my my fear is increasing in proportion to the time. And then, then finally, this, the cop, who had, he leaves the room and the cop who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and he asked me, he, he came in the room and told me rather, he said, the other officers are going to harm you. I've been holding them off. I, I, I can't do this any longer. You have to help yourself. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. You go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, uh, just 16, I wasn't thinking about the long term i was only concerned with my safety in the moment I, I was in fear of my life the fact that i didn't know where i was and that no one else knew where i was either loomed very large in my mind i was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically and then he's conveyed this threat he's given me this false promise so i i made a decision to uh just make up a story based on the information that they gave me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the six weeks run up to it by the time everything was said and done, I collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. I was charged with their murder and rape. So they hit you with the good cop, bad cop situation. Yes. They wanted to scare you into a corner, which it worked because, like you said, you ended up falling out on the floor crying. You don't know what your future holds. You're just you're not even thinking about the future. You're just trying to ensure your safety right now. Right. Yes. And you got you, it. You were put in a situation like a lot of people. I have a best friend. His name is Mike as well. He's in jail right now, serving 25 years. 
And I'm pretty sure they pulled that same type of deal on him. He was around that same age. We were teenagers. I'm not going to go into details about his story, but like him, like you and many other people, like what the central central part five, I think they were, they were called. That's right. Yes. They, they scare you into an omission of guilt an omission of something that you didn't do, or you might've partially done something wrong, but not the crime that they, they think that you're doing or that they're accusing you of doing. And it's wrong. So, okay. They scare you into an admission of guilt. You serve 16 years in prison. Yes. What happened to get you out of jail, to get you out of prison? Sure. I mean, I mean, I would like to explain a little bit about the trial and how I was wrongfully convicted and then get to the exoneration. Is that okay? Let's go. Let's go. That's fine. Cool. The, the floor right. is yours. All right. So the DNA didn't match me before the trial. They showed the semen on the victim didn't match. And then the prosecutor got the medical examiner to uh, commit perjury and commit fraud. He claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim was promiscuous. You know, and that and then that allowed the prosecutor to argue, oh, it doesn't matter. The DNA doesn't match you. That doesn't mean he's innocent, that there was yet another person that she must have slept with before you murdered and raped her, which doesn't make any sense because that would mean there would be seminal fluid for two people if, if that was the case. And then in addition to that, uh, he took it a step further and mentioned another person by name that he claimed that slept with the victim, but he never called this other student as a witness. He never asked him for a DNA test. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. And at the same time, my public defender essentially didn't defend me. He didn't call my alibi as a witness. He rarely met with me. When I tried to explain I was innocent, what happened in interrogation room, he was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Uh, he never cross-examined this medical examiner. He never made use of the DNA evidence. Uh, and in terms of the confession, you know, uh, it was not videotaped. It was no audio tape. It was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And when they came to court, they left the, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. So when you defend the case with as a confession, you got to answer that confession. You got to explain it. You have to disprove it. You know, in many ways you can, you bring it all together in your closing argument, but he, he, he didn't do that. He wouldn't allow me to testify. Uh, and then also, uh, in addition to that, sometimes he argued to the jury, the confession never happened. At other times he argued, oh, the confession happened, but it was coerced. And at still other times he was arguing that it happened, but it was uh, it was false. So basically he destroyed his own credibility as, as an attorney. You can't be all over the place making all these different just throwing stuff yeah. against the wall, then people are going to think you're going to say whatever you, you need to say. So the, the judge went along with that, correct? Even though he was yes, all he over did. the way, all over the place, the, the judge, judge went allowed along with that. It. Yes, he did. And the judge did things on his end of it also, which led this thing to go south. So he, so polygraph results are not allowable in the courtroom unless both sides agree because it's not reliable. But the, even though that's the rule, he allowed the polygraphers to keep telling the jury that I failed the polygraph. And and then the, the victim's clothes was entered into evidence, including the, blah, the bra, which um, 
match to the one of the statements. I, I said I ripped her bra off. So the jury asked to see the bra, which was important because there's some bras, the way that they're made, you can't pull that off of a body. So that's when the judge said, well, the evidence, including this bra, have been left in the courtroom over the weekend and the janitors thought it was garbage. So they threw it out. So it's not available anymore. And lastly, the jury sent out a note asking the judge, if we can't come up with a verdict, that we're going to have to be sequestered over the Christmas holiday, meaning kept in a hotel. You can't watch the TV, the news, limited. And the judge said yes. And so I learned many years later that at that point, it was 11 to 1. There was one holdout juror who thought I, who didn't think I was guilty. And he said they were all pressuring him. And that at the end, uh, when that note came back, none of them wanted to be stuck over the Christmas holiday, including him. And uh, that was why he uh, switched his vote. They just wanted to get out of there. So that, yeah, he switched his vote to guilty, e even though he, he, didn't, he didn't think I was guilty. And so the end result of all of that together was that I was uh, wrongfully convicted and I was given a 15 to life sentence, even though the judge said to me, maybe you are innocent. He still sentenced me instead of overturning the conviction. And I was sent to a maximum security prison. Come on, man. And this is the judicial system that we think is doing our people some justice. This is the same system that didn't do right by the Central Park Five. They didn't do right by my man, Jeff, right here. They didn't do right by my friend, Mike, because just like you, if I'm not mistaken, he had a public defender. And like you mentioned, those public defenders don't defend you. A lot of right. times they tell you to plead guilty for a lesser charge, but let's say you're facing, okay, you were facing two heavy penalties, rape and murder. Let's say you're facing those two. If he tells you to plead guilty, what are you going to plead guilty to? Yeah. So the typically the way that that would run, you know, he would tell you, well, look, if you lose a trial, you could get 25 to life. You know, I, I don't, I don't think I could win this case, but you know, there's a, there's a deal on the table right now. Uh, you could plead guilty to manslaughter and get five to 15 instead of, you know, 25 to life. And most people take the deals and they, and you know, that not, you know, about 98% of the cases uh, resolved by plea bargains rather than trials. And there was a judge who estimated that he thought that the percentage of innocent people that were pleading guilty to crimes w was at 10%. Okay. So let me fast forward a little bit. Yeah. You spent 16 years in prison. Mm -hmm. You get exonerated by DNA evidence. How did that come about? So I got the innocence, the innocence project agreed to take my case. The district attorney who had blocked further DNA testing left office and her successor allowed me to have the testing. And thirdly, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. So that hadn't, that had been created in 97, 98. So we went from being able to say that it wasn't, that it wasn't me, but who, who it actually was the DNA matched him because he had killed the second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in, in, in my case. So my conviction was overturned ba based on uh, the DNA match and his, and his confession. And ultimately all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And he was arrested and convicted of the crime. Now, 16 years of your life is gone. 
Yes. You got sentenced at 17, released 16 years later. That's what, 33? 33 30, years old? Close, 32. Okay, so when you get out of prison, what did they do to pay you back? What did they owe you? Well, I had, they released me without anything and I had to file a lawsuit and, and it took five years before I received any financial compensation. So it was five difficult years. You know, I was always passed over for gainful employment because all the employers wanted somebody that, you know, could hit the ground running that had job experience. Uh, technology was different. GPS, cell phones, internet hadn't been created. Culture was different. Cities and towns didn't look the same. The people that used to live in places that I knew were gone. So it felt like I was in a parallel universe. Uh, I, I went to mental health professionals four times a week for six years and dealing with the after effects. I experienced the stigma. You were in prison 16 years wrongfully, yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how, how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you? So it's been difficult in terms of personal uh, relationships. And I, it was awkward meeting up with my uh, immediate and extended family because you know the majority of them had never come to see me. So I knew who they were from memories when I was younger, but you know um, I was a different person now and so were they. Uh, that having been said, you know, I, I did become an advocate and I, uh, I started doing presentations across the country and some internationally. I became a weekly columnist. I was doing a lot of media to trade the privacy in exchange for uh, awareness of issues. And I was meeting with elected officials. Uh, I got scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's because I was 10 classes short at the time that they cut the college education from prisoners. So I got the scholarship for Mercy College. I got the bachelor's and I would go on to get a master's degree from John Jay College. Uh, my thesis was on wrongful conviction cause and reform. And after five years, I got some financial compensation. So, you know, I, I took a million and a half of the dollars that I had got. And then I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And we've been able to continue the policy work I did as an individual, but we've been able to free 11 wrongfully convicted people. You see on the screen mm -hmm. now with, with the red tie, with the glasses, that was William Hawhey who did uh, eight years and uh, four, four months in an arson case that was actually an electrical fire. Uh, helped pass three laws, uh, videotaping interrogations, identification reform, expansion of DNA database. And I joined, we, I joined the coalition, the foundation joined a coalition called It Could Happen to You, which I'm an advisory board member of. And we've been able to pass five additional laws there. And we're now doing policy work in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And at some point, I became not content to sit in the courtroom in the front row. I wanted to sit at the defense table. And there's a picture here now up. Uh, I'm speaking. That's um first case I entered into uh, as co-counsel. We're there for um, Andre Brown asking he'd be given this day in, uh, in, in court to have his evidence of innocence considered. So I became an, an attorney and, you know, pursued the dream of exonerating others as a lawyer. Okay. So you get out of jail, you get out of prison, you wait five years or have to wait five years before they can give you any type of payback. You got to get reaccustomed to life. Now, current time, you are defending people who were wrongfully convicted. Yes. You are out in New York, though, correct? I am. Yes, that's true. But just statistically, and I'm pretty sure you know the numbers. Nationwide, how many people are wrongfully convicted a year or just period? 
Sure. So, uh, in terms of per year, so the the est the estimation is that uh, ten thousand people are wrongfully convicted uh, each each year per. There's a Wayne State uh, study. Uh, so that's that estimation. I mean, it's an estimation because you can only count people that are exonerated, not um, not not people wrongfully convicted. But nationally, since 1989, 2,805 people from 1989 forward have been have been exonerated. So this is a this is a really uh, you know it's a much bigger problem than than what yes. most people realize. And remember, those numbers those are the people that made it out. That's not the people that's still in. I mean, 19 people I did time with were exonerated either before me or after me. So I personally believe the percentage is between 15 to 20% of the prison population. Right. Because a lot of times we get people in there, they're like placeholders. They're just trying to get people in there to fill spots. We're not trying to do any hard work to, you know, pull up evidence, go to trial. Hey, you're our suspect. You did it. We're going to scare you into a confession. Yeah. Or a guilty ask you plea. Something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Guilty plea. I have someone in the audience. They, this question right here, they ask, what would you tell a younger teenager or a young teenager about how to handle that situation? Yeah, I would, I would say to them that you're supposed to just give your name and you know, where you live. And then you ask for a lawyer and you, you don't not, you're not supposed to say anything else. So, um, that lawyer will prevent the police from coercing you and doing to them what they, what they did to me. But the thing is that most, most people who are innocent, their innocence works against them. And they think, you know, well, I'm innocent. What do I need a lawyer for? This is going to make me look bad or look guilty, but those are all incorrect lines of reasoning. You need to ask for a lawyer. Same thing as an adult. And last thing I'll mention here, Mike, is, you know, the percentage of wrongfully convicted prisoners uh, whose wrongful conviction caused by coerced false confession is at 25%. And while adults have given false confessions, particularly vulnerable populations are, are youth and people with mental health issues. And sometimes the cops even manage to co-opt parents into their tools of coercion. Well, 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 come on, Johnny, just, just tell them what happened. We can get out of here. I mean, they got something on you. Why, why, why are we here? You know, and by the time you get out of there with your child, the false confession is mentioned and is that he ain't coming home for a really, really long time. That's sad, sad and foul. You mentioned it in your story, and it's the same thing that goes for my friend Michael I told you about. He's still in right now. He won't get out until he's about 43 if he serves his time. Once he mm. gets out, locked up at 17, gets out at 43, never had a car, never had a job, never had any children, never had a place of his own. I'm pretty sure you were in that same situation. I... I really was. Yes, exactly. And that made it, that made transitioning even more, even more, uh, even more difficult. You know, just the amount of choices available in the world could be, could be overwhelming. Sometime when I went shopping, there were so many products and so many variations and name. Look, you know, I, I can't finish this. I, I'm just come back <laughs> another time. It's too, it's too much. What are you going to order to eat? Oh, same, same, same thing, same thing as him. And, and one time the Dean of the college even what took me shopping to try to teach me how to shop, you know, what cleaning products I would need to clean the apartment I was living. And I saved the empty containers and brought it back with me to the supermarket so that I could know what to, what, what to purchase next time. So that's how deep that this, this thing ran.
it was really, really hard for all the reasons you correctly point out. I've been I've been doing a lot of soul searching lately. I've been looking a lot into purpose. Mm. Do you think what happened to you was a way to get you to go into your right path? Thousand percent, without a doubt. With, without a doubt. This is my mission in the world. This is why I went through what what I what I went through. And look, I have a sense of uh resignation, of acceptance, of, of inner peace as a result of that. So I, I, I feel healing. I feel um I feel like it's cathartic. It make it makes it makes a difference. And you know, I need to make my suffering count for something. And I've and I've done that and kind of tied into tied into that, you know, I'm asked a lot of times, am I, am I angry? And no, I want to, I, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And I can't do that if I'm angry. And if I was angry, you know, I would really be the only loser in that scenario because I already lost so much as it was. What am I going to give them the rest of my life? It's not like I'd be harming them if I was angry. And I take that energy and I channel it into the advocacy work. Uh, that that I do, and so I have my. It's comfort to know my place in in the world, and to know you know I I make a, a difference. I'm glad that you know that you're making a difference. I'm glad that you know that you don't have to be angry because if you hold in that anger, that resentment, it now controls you because it lives in your mind. Now I look right. at some of your other pictures. I see a man at peace. Yes. I see a man out having a good time. You have to excuse that one right now, but no, know, that's wonderful. You, that's a great human interest moment. Yes. I see you enjoying yourself, you know, you doing what you want to do. You out with nature, you working for the people. Like I said, you're out here speaking, you have a foundation, you're, you're shaking hands, you're making moves. You are trying to get lost past which you have helped get some past. Correct. I have. Yes, I have. Most recently. So Governor Cuomo recently signed into a law about like four or five days ago, the country's first independent oversight commission for prosecutors now. So now there's an independent body that can investigate allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, the first of its kind in the country. So, yes, I have. We have. I have. I have helped uh, pass uh, uh, eight laws, you know, and most this, of them in New York, but one in Pennsylvania. Go ahead. Mm hmm. Oh, you, you pretty much answered that. I was about to say this last recent one was is only in New York, correct? The most recent one was in New York, but there is another. I helped pass a law myself and my colleagues. So the it could happen to you, Coalition, from our success in New York. We opened chapters in Pennsylvania and California. So called Pennsylvania could happen to you. California can happen to you. So me, the coalition's founder, one other person, we're in common to all three of the chapters and everything else is people just um, state specific. So we did help pass uh, a law in Pennsylvania, automatic expungement. So previously what was happening is people were exonerated in court, but their records weren't cleared. And so that was hurting the, the exonerees when they would go for job interviews. Uh, so we helped to pass that. Uh, our, our current goal now in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is one of 14 states that does not have any compensation. So the state doesn't pay the guys anything when they're exonerated. So we're working on that and we're building support for that and also uh, for the oversight for prosecutors. Now in California, we're trying to get the oversight for prosecutors and we're trying to get rid of, we're trying to kill the death penalty, Mike, because, you know, the a risk of executing somebody innocent amongst many other legit objections. But so that those are our policy goals. And 
done some work in New York too towards um, you know parole reform also. So lots of stuff to to change. And uh, I'm just getting warmed up, Mike. I'm just getting warmed up. I I can tell. Listen, I've been communicating with you for like the last week or two online. I've been watching your pages, stalking you. You are a hardworking man. You work hard for what you believe in. And this is a cause, a great cause to believe in. I want to, I want to touch on something you just said. One of the states doesn't give compensation for people who are exonerated. Yeah, there's 14 of them. The one I'm working on now is Pennsylvania because it's a, it's a border state to, to New York. Yeah, they right, don't give, right. they don't, they don't, they don't give compensation. No, they don't. We've been working a year, Mike, just to try to build support, just to build some support amongst the legislators. And we're still not all the way there. We're still not all the way there. Yeah, so you're at the the ground level because once you build yes. support, it has to be written, it has to be passed or attempted to be passed. Right. Exactly. There's so many things, and so many things that you're saying that I'm seeing that you're seeing is wrong with our system. How do you? Yes. Okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. I've been networking with a lot of people lately, and I've been telling them I honestly feel like the way to fix the system is to tear it down and just start over. Just okay. honest speaking. Well, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it would be a lot more work to do that as opposed to just identifying where where do the faults lie in the system and then seek to, you know, re re change those things. You know, while I do uh, have met with some in law enforcement, like I've spoken in front of groups of prosecutors, and you know, twice a year I, I, I've spoken at police front, uh, police academy with the cadets. So while it's great to encourage the Voluntary implementation of best practices. I do believe it's more important to get them passed into law so that it's not optional anymore. But you know, but all these deficiencies leading to wrongful conviction and the other justice reform issues, you know, we, we need to make fixes in in these things and in, in the in, in in the law. We we need it across across the country and we need it in the federal justice system too. You know, it, it, there is no state that's doing it better than the rest. Oh, this could never happen here. Yes, it can. And it does, you know, and it and, probably uh, does. Yep. It absolutely, it absolutely does. And, you know, but I think that, you know, positioning justice reform is about accuracy and justice and, you know, not anti-prosecutor or cop, definitely against any cop or any prosecutor that's engaging in anything illegal, you know, running over constitutional rights, state rights and filing procedure, definitely against them. But if you're honest in that profession, look, force, force the dirty ones out of your profession. I mean, what's the saying that's given to civilians? Uh, if you see something, say something. Isn't that how that goes? So what yeah. happened to that as a point when it comes to uh, when it comes to law enforcement and only when that happens, can we have some uh, faith restored the public into law enforcement. But right now, you know, uh, too many things are broken and uh, it's not a few bad apples. It ain't everybody, but it's also not a few bad apples. If it was, we wouldn't have close to 3000 exonerations. We wouldn't have the unjustifiable deadly police force. We wouldn't have the police brutality. So no, it's not a few bad apples. No, it's more than a few. And I want to go to the audience. My man, Zay, he asked, what was the first thing you wanted to do or wanted when you were freed? I wanted to have a good meal. And uh, they, they had pre this project had prearranged that. So I went to an Italian food restaurant and I had mussels with Fra Diavolo sauce. And I hadn't had that in 16 years. And 
that the, the first night of my freedom, I, I did something else I hadn't did in 16 years, Mike. I took a bath. I took really? a bath, man. Yeah. I, well, no, yeah, because in prison. Just showers. Yeah. Just the showers. showers. And I got to sit out, and I got to sit outside after it was dark and I, I could stay inside. I just took it all in. Yes. Took it in. Yes. Yeah. I'm it feels so good. good to breathe that fresh, free air after 16 yeah. years of being in prison. Yes, it does. Yeah. I got another question from the audience. What do you see for your future? So I see a book deal, a, a movie, maybe a one-man show or a musical, just getting my story out in other art mediums. Uh, I see my profile getting raised. I mean, I, I would like it to, you know, be on par with, you know, some of the old civil rights uh, leaders, you know, where, where I speak, it can get a lot more attention and be even more influential. So I see that. And at some point, if we can stop being so polarized as a country like we are right now, at some mm -hmm. point, maybe I make the transition from working as an advocate in a nonprofit sector. Maybe I make the jump to politics and I run for office. So imagine me as a district attorney, for example. We can have you a real conviction review unit. We can free people that's innocent in prison. We can divert, you know, uh, not people who are arrested for nonviolent crimes. Incarceration doesn't need to be the punishment for everything. We, we can, uh, you know, drug usage as a public health problem. Uh, everybody would be, you know, we end over sentencing. Everybody could be presumed to get the minimum unless there's some reason why why it, sh why it shouldn't be. And imagine the district attorney, you know, weighing in on justice reforms. I mean, saying, yeah, we need to get this change. We need to have college education in prison, in, in, in the prisons because it's a much less recidivism uh, rate. And look, we need to have the prison as a, as a rehabilitative place. So enough with all this uh, verbal abuse and everything else. And you guys got to crack down on all this prison violence. So imagine somebody saying that. Imagine imagine worthy parole candidates, people who could demonstrate their rehabilitation as proven by their disciplinary record, as proven by uh, completing college and therapeutic programs and vocational trades. Imagine them going to the parole board with a letter on the DA, uh, on the DA letters, uh, letterhead. Yeah, we've reviewed their record and we feel they can safely be returned to the community. Parole him uh, parole him. Imagine people go, you know, imagine those type of things. Imagine the national dialogue that could take place, even in the fact of just running the amount, how further issue could go, much less if I won and tried to, you know, persuade other people, you know, to have these, have real conviction review units and be for justice reform. I mean, I, I, I could see doing that. And Mike, I'm going to dream out loud. Okay. If I could win that, Okay, if I could win that, and maybe it never gets off the ground, but just dream with me for a minute. What if, if I could win that, I would run for governor after that. Why would I not? And just be a person for the people. And if you could win that, you got to go for the grand prize, right? If you're the governor President. of New York, you got to go for that. Yeah. So look, I, there's a potential path in that aspect of it. Lots of ifs and maybes. Can this break right and that break right? But I could see. I could see doing all of those things conceivably, but the main thing, you know, is, you know, enough with the polarization, you know, I mean, I, I vote candidate, I vote plank. I, I'm not loyal to either party. Whoever's for justice reform, mm -hmm. I back you, you know, and to be, to have a realistic chance of winning, you have to run on one of the major party labels. And I don't want half the country to hate me because 
what I don't have what the letter that you think I should have in front of my in front of my name. So I I, I don't I, I'm a person for the people and I, I don't want that part of it. So I would have to see if things can change, whether I really would do that. But it was clear clear to me as recent as some years ago. But we'll see. Maybe it still comes about. We'll see. Well, I'm, I'm going to say this. If I ever yeah. see you run for governor. Yeah, I'm in Georgia. I okay. will legally move to New York just <laughs> okay. to vote for you, my man. All right. And try to help because I see you're for the people. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like I said, he's out here shaking hands. He's out here with the people. He's working with the people endlessly, like day in and day out. And even just that small three minutes of speech you just gave better than half the stuff that I've heard from a lot of these other politics. And then if we get into it, like you said, we're polarized. We're, we're divided yeah. as a country. We are very, listen, man, this is no offense to anybody. I am not racist, but the last four years previous to this, there was a lot of tension in our country. We pressure was about to burst the pipes. You hear me? Mm. Like people were at each other's necks, white people, black people, Indian, whatever you want to call them. Everyone was divided and it still spilled over to now. We're in a little better place, but it's still there. And right. we need people. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to say it. Ideas are not discussed and debated anymore. You know, whether something is supported or not has to do with who says it. So if a Republican articulates an issue, the Dems is against it automatically. If a Democrat uh, articulates something, Republicans are against it automatically, but would be for it if someone of their own party does it. It's it's mm -hmm. terrible. It, 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 it's, it, and I don't even believe that the, major, the majority of the time, well, I know this. I don't have to say believe because I've had explicit conversations. A lot of times elected officials, they, they don't even vote their conscience. It, it is, what is the party? What position does the party leadership want me to take? It, it, yeah, it's it's really it's really it's really crazy to me. You know, it's a it's not you know there's a lot of things wrong, but you know, ho I hope one day we can get it all straightened, uh, get it all straightened out. You know, I, I, just the idea that just a couple of people have all the power and 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 not not the people who are in the positions that are representing the will of the people who voted for them. To me, it's wrong. To me, it's wrong. Very wrong. Very wrong. And we need change. I want to I want to point out a few media things. We're going to get out of here shortly. Um, I see you right here. In front of this sign, let me make that bigger. On the wall behind you, it says emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Now, that's a quote from Bob Marley. Now, if I make that a little bigger, I see on your shirt. Yes, I'm that exoneree who is also a lawyer. You're on your knees right here. To me, that symbolizes a lot. That right there could be art. And it could be depicted in a few ways. But to me, that symbolizes not only a free man who understands the, the system. I see a man who's not bound by color, right. not bound by race, because, you know, Bob Marley's a black man, you're a mm -hmm. white man, two very different situations, two very different people, but y'all both stand for something. 
Y'all both have a very powerful message. He has a message of peace that he spread a lot through his songs, through the way that he lived his life. Just every, every way imaginable through him, you saw peace. You saw a man going for peace, trying to spread peace. I see it with you and your message, your works day in and day out. The shirt you have on on there, but not to make light of the situation. Everything you stand for is peace. Your purpose in life right now, spread peace throughout our justice system, you know, so it can reflect on our people. And I appreciate you for that. But I want to ask you this. What was the purpose of you kneeling in front of this? Was it just a photo op? Absolutely not. No, because I, I felt humbled in the moment. I, I, I'm in the presence of greatness. Just that quote from the per from Barb Marley him, himself. You know, we the staying. We stand on the shoulders of giants, of people who come before us. And I very much see my criminal justice reform work as mm -hmm. part of you know civil rights struggle. I very much. I, I identify and feel a kinship with great people who've come before me that have fought for civil rights and for freedom in a variety of, in many, many different ways. And I, and I feel humbled when I'm in the presence of something that reminds me of that, while I also feel uh, a kinship. I mean, I felt like that when I, there's a big statue of Dr. King in front of the, in front of the White Plains courthouse where, you know, I, I've been there and I felt so humbled and so in awe. There was signs like I remember on on a rest area and a highway, and there was a a sign that said that that location had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. So I feel commonality, I feel solidarity, but I also feel humbled also when I'm in places like that. So it's all those that vibe I'm trying to convey. I'm, I'm probably not, but I'm trying it is what I'm caught up in right there. Now, listen, it spoke volumes to me when I saw this picture and when I see other pictures of you, like I said, you're paying respect right here. Mm -hmm. You're right there by the statue, by the, um, to represent for the Vietnam fallen soldiers. I see a lot in you and me personally, I want to thank you. I have some questions that I want to ask you and I'm going to end this thing right here because I want to ask you some stuff offline, but before we go, is there anything that you would like to say to the audience to close us out? Yes. If you like the work that I'm about, if you the work, my foundation is about, you know, we have a crowdfunding site on the website called Patreon. So my dream, what if there were 25,000 people who, were willing to sacrifice three to five dollars or whatever you could afford on a recurring basis to help us free more innocent people. You know, help me to get that message out. And I ask people to contribute. You know, that would give us additional funds so we could hire attorneys, investigators, paralegals, other additional legal personnel so that, you know, we, so that we could free even more. We have 10 cases active. There's another seven that are approved that are just sitting there that we don't have the capacity to move. We could do policy work. Uh, and more than just New York, Pennsylvania, and California. My ultimate dream, and I'll be able to do this when the public supports there, I would love to have a chapter of my organization in each state and ultimately in each country because I see 
wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue. In countries where we don't see and we don't hear about exonerations, it's not because the wrongful convictions aren't happening, it's because no one's working on it. So I wanted to share that. And then there's something a little bit more broader. <clears throat> Lessons from my life journey. So set goals. So whatever kind of adversity you're, fi you're facing, so set goals, have a realistic plan, be flexible. Remember the goal is the goal. The plan is not the goal. So if an unexpected door opens up and it moves you towards uh, the goal, then, you know, be flexible. No reasons why you can't accomplish something. Only reasons why something might be harder. Uh, work real hard and never give up. And when you're about to give up, that might be the key moment where you're about to have a breakthrough. So even though you can't keep going anymore, do so anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And when you come out the other side, then reach back and help people into the same position that you were in before and do some work on the preventative side. And if you do that, you can make your suffering count for something. It could be healing. It could be cathartic. Uh, it could make a difference. And I know that those principles, that goes far beyond wrongful conviction. That, that could apply to someone homeless, debilitating illness, uh, domestic abuse uh, survivor, someone who's been sexually assaulted, someone who's experienced racism, someone who's been discriminated against in some other kind of way, on whatever level. All those things I mentioned and many more, bigger, smaller, that applies generically. But we need everybody to, let's make, well, maybe it's silly to say it, but let's, let's try to, let's try to make this place better. Let's try to make the world just a little bit better than what we found it. That's not silly to say at all. I was going to do my closing remark, but I got a question from the audience. One more question. How do you feel about juvenile justice reform? We still have a long way to go with respect to that. There's still too many states that that charge juveniles as, as, as adults, you know, just from a scientific point of view that, you know, the mind is not fully developed. Uh, so there's that aspect is, you know, some states still have, you know, juvenile, juvenile lifers, you know, life people, juvenile sentenced life, life without parole. And, you know, there's say, that's saying that somebody is beyond categorically beyond the pale of rehabilitation. I, I can't, I can't agree with that. I think that each person is, is capable of being rehabilitated. Now, whether they have become rehabilitated, that's a different question, but it should be an opportunity to, to you know, re review that. And, and in some ways, as bad as the adult system is, you know, there's not as many, much due process and rights built into the juvenile justice system, even as the, as, as the adult system. So I think we have a really long way to go. And, you know, the whole, you know, uh, school to prison pipeline and, you know, metal detectors in schools so that it's re resembling more of a prison than, than a conducive learning environment. So there's a lot to be done with respect to juvenile uh, justice reform. So much to be done on the juvenile level, on the adult level. Jeff, I'm going to thank you for coming by. I'm about to close this thing out. It's your boy, Mike Ryder, Mr. Accountability, the man behind the microphone. This has been a great, informative, special edition of Mike Ryder Talks. I'm going to close this thing out like I do every time you see the ticker at the bottom of your screen until we meet again be blessed i love y'all i'm gone